Welcome back, everybody, to another Vince August podcast. We are going on to episode number 27. We kind of had a a two-parter there with American Sniper uh, following the interviews with servicemen in Iraq. Um, So we're going to change the gears here today. No guest, but this is going to be a a fun one for a lot of you as I'm going to get into entertainment stuff. Um, I will hit on Brian Williams at the start of the show and talk about truth in television and relate Brian Williams to my experiences on what would you do, uh, which a lot of people have questioned the truth about and how much of it's real. So I'll discuss exactly um, how much of what would you do was real. Uh, I will hit on the Grammys and the Kanye controversy and all of that and then i will finish up the show with saturday night live's 40th anniversary my experiences the two times i was on the show in um under five role and my experience with many of the people that worked on the show um including someone who may have an issue with me from the show um so that's coming up in this episode so let's kick it off with brian williams um, Brian Williams, if you don't know, was NBC journalist uh, who was interviewed by David Letterman. And during the course of his interview with David Letterman, I guess he started speaking on the topic of his experience when he was in Iraq. And he embellished uh, one of the stories and his experience by saying that his helicopter was shot at and, you know, it was this perilous situation. And I guess the second time he talked about it, he embellished it a little bit more. And Brian Williams was attacked when the truth came out. And I guess the helicopter pilot revealed that there was no such attack. He made it up to try to create this this greater story or, or how his newscasting was very dangerous. Who knows what he was trying to do other than garnish or garner some attention for himself and his reporting and his journalism, uh, it blew up in his face. Ultimately, Brian Williams is now taking a voluntary six-month leave from reporting the news. Now, here we get into, again, you know, the, the public reaction, and the public reaction is always, fire him, get rid of him, he's got, he's got to be executed, he should be shot. He should be killed. He should be terminated. He should be liquidated. You know, right away, everybody wants to jump on, you know, Brian Williams and give him the harshest possible punishment for doing what he did because, of course, nobody out there has ever lied or embellished a story. Now, of course, people are going to say, well, I may have lied or embellished a story, but you know, I only did it with friends. I only did it with, you know, my wife, my girlfriend, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. You know, I never did it to an entire nation of people. Listen, the only reason you never lied to an entire nation of people is probably because you don't have the audience and the platform to do so. Because if you had that platform, you probably would embellish something or lie about something. Um you know what? Is it the end of the world that this guy did this? No. Is he a replaceable part of a news team? Of course. I mean, what what is it going to take to replace someone and put, you know, a a handsome or good looking or attractive person there to read a teleprompter and report the news? Nothing. Here is the greater issue that I have with the Brian Williams story. The greater issue is something I've been talking about on every single podcast just about. It's once again what our news has become in this country. And because of what our news has become, it almost forces Brian Williams into the situation he was in. Now, I'm not going to, this is not, I'm not trying to make an excuse for him. I'm not excusing what he did. But our news has morphed from, reporting facts to creating a story and part of the news story is always opinion fox cnn all of the networks that you watch you get a news story 
and an opinion. And what happens with a lot of people watching the news, they get confused between what is fact and what is opinion. So what is the purpose of this? The purpose of this, one, is to get people to watch the news, period. And why do we need people to watch the news? Ratings. And what? how do we get ratings and how do we pay for people to stay on the news? We sell commercials. This is a business, folks. And the news, unlike anything else on TV, has become morphed into entertainment. We have 24-hour news channels competing against each other. If you're all telling the same story, listen, reporting on anything that happens, whether it be a, a, a you know the train accident we just had in, in, I think it was Westchester, or a plane accident in China, or a war in Iraq, the reporting should be almost completely consistent. I mean, it should really be the same. The only difference that you should get when reporting an event, whether it be 9-11 or something tragic or whatever it may be, is the camera shot and the person who's reporting it, the personality they bring to it. Other than that, the facts are the facts. The story doesn't change. There's nothing different about a news story other than the way it's presented. But the facts itself are the same. Like, for example, here, let me take the most basic and simple thing. Super Bowl. We have the NFL Network. We have ESPN. We have Fox Sports. We have every sports channel out there. Okay, in the end, they're all reporting the same thing. The Patriots won the Super Bowl. Period. That's the story. Then the story gets broken down into analysis. And the major analysis becomes what we saw happen in the last minute of the game and who is going to put their spin on it their way. But in the end, we watched the game. We saw what happened. We know the final outcome. What really can you bring as a twist other than getting me in the locker room, getting me interviews with some people, giving me camera angles that other people don't have. So news should be fairly consistent. However, it's morphed. Because of the competition out there, you're seeing news channels take chances with personalities, take chances with stating opinion in a way to be outrageous so that people will watch. And here's and, and this is going to tie into what we're going to get into later with the Grammys. But ultimately, what you want to do is you want to either say things to incite people with anger to keep them coming back or give an opinion that slants to one side or the other, which is why we have, you know, we we consider Fox to be the conservative right, CNN to be the liberal left. And, you know, then everything falls on one side or the other. So Brian Williams, unfortunately, kind of fell into the trap that has become our news. You know, he's he's kind of was sucked he sucked himself into this situation where he tried to create a story. He tried to embellish, he tried to again, and what purpose? To bring more attention to himself. I have been employed many of you may know um one of the jobs that I did is I worked with ABC on a TV show called What Would You Do? Now, what would you do was a, an interesting show in that it was a hybrid. It was part news, part entertainment. The news aspect of the show was we were taking stories, taking hot topics from news sources, national stories, and trying to create a scenario that was consistent with the news story. And when I say we, actors would act out the scenario that occurred in the news and see how people would react. So, for example, um, one of the, the big things was the, the repealing of don't ask, don't tell. And we wanted to see or the producers wanted to see what the reaction would be if someone in the public had a reaction to two soldiers being affectionate to one another in a public place 
how really the public feels about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So one of the episodes I did was we were in a diner in Rutherford, New Jersey, and two actors came in dressed as servicemen, and they were showing affection. Of, they were same sex, showing affection at the counter, and I was the antagonist that would say, hey, hey, knock that off. Don't do that. And people, for the most part, for the overwhelming part, jumped in to defend these two same-sex soldiers showing affection, and it became under the guise of, hey, don't ask, don't tell was repealed. We're allowed to do this. Now, an interesting thing about that episode that I, I don't believe it aired, what I had said to John Canonis uh, was, listen, can I kind of take a different slant on this? I, I want some creative um, freedom on this. And the great thing about the show when I worked on it, I, I can't say what it is now because I'm not there. Uh, but when I was there and I was a part of the show, um, they, you know, John was and still is a great guy who gives a lot of creative freedom. And if you go to him with an idea, he will look you and say, run with it, Vin. It sounds great. And one of the ideas I came up with is, you know, here I am, Joe Civilian, taking on these two servicemen. And, you know, I, I'm in a, an, a, an inferior position here. You know, two servicemen could basically play soccer with an infant's, you know, decapitated skull and no one would have a problem with it in in many aspects in this country because we were in the middle of a war at the time and everything was about support the troops. So I, I was fighting this incredible uphill battle. There was really very little I could do to convince the people around me and it was becoming painfully obvious you know, we're, we keep getting the same results. And I said, you know what, I, give me an opportunity to kind of change the scenario. And what I did was I went into the van and I started researching um, if I enlisted in the service back in 90, where would I wind up going to uh, basic training, where I would have been deployed, who the drill sergeants were. I came up with infantry units in Iraq. I tried to get get as much information as I could in about a 10-minute window, put it in my phone. I memorized it. I was reading it. And we went back and did the scenario, and we flipped the scenario where I was now a civilian, formerly a soldier who served in Iraq. And what I did was I said, hey, listen, I was in that same place that you were in. This is not how you were trained in basic training. I know because I went through it too. So you know what? Show the uniform the same respect that I showed. I don't care what was repealed now. This is not the way you're trained. This is not the way you should act in public. And sure enough, the result was completely different. And people came to my aid in those situations. Uh, unfortunately, here's the other aspect of the show that doesn't get aired. People have to sign releases in order for us to show the segments. And if they don't sign the releases, all we could do is pixelate their face, block them out. And then, you know, ABC's lawyer team would have to see what the potential was. If the person would be identified, could sue the network. So a lot of stuff didn't make air that people wouldn't sign releases. So, you know, that was one of the things and I'm giving you this example to try to point out the show was an entertainment news hybrid. We had the ability to embellish as actors what the original news story was so that we could get a reaction from the public. So as a hybrid show, we could do that creatively. But I'm going to tell you this. I did 40 episodes of What Would You Do? And I could tell you, 40 out of 40 times, never once did we tip our hand or did we give any indication to any of the people that signed releases or didn't sign releases that you see on the air or didn't make the air that had any idea of what we were doing. That show was 100% real and genuine. None of that was a setup from the perspective of the public. I give you my absolute word on that. All of that was real. 
The show was 100% real. That was one of my favorite episodes because I was allowed to do that twist. We had other episodes, um, you know, my, my if, if I had to give you my top three, that would be in, in my top three. My first episode, which was under the, the title Shopping While Black, where, where I played a, uh, a security guard in a high-end store in, in Soho, and I was racially profiling black actors who were acting as shoppers in the store. And again, that, that one was, for me, special. One, because it was my, my first episode doing the show. The second reason it was special, because of how eye-opening it was for me. Because here I was playing and portraying this racist security guard, and it was amazing to me how many people took my side in the horrific actions that I was taking. Uh, one of the people was walking through the store, the actress, and she had a shopping bag. She had a, a purse, a big purse. And I said, I need to look through your bag. And she said, why? And I said, because you're black. And she was like, this is outrageous. And I looked at one of the customers who was actually toting around um, a small carry-on bag. Obviously, they were going to leave to get on a flight or just come off a flight. And the person was white. And I looked and I said, didn't I search your bag? And without hesitation, this bystander who stumbled into our scene looked at me and the black actress and said, oh, yeah, yeah, he searched my bag. I didn't have a problem with it. Lied, completely lied. So I could continue my racial profiling of this black actress. Um, Some of what happened in that scene was so unbelievably eye opening for me as a person Again, that's why that one hit me. Um, the other one that was a favorite was uh, where we did a, an episode where a, a guy comes into a restaurant for lunch, and I'm sitting at a table for two, and he comes in, and I see he opens up a, a ring box, and he's going to be proposing. And we had to figure out a way to kind of, you know, again, the whole point of the show is draw the public in. How can we sucker people in to react to this situation? And... I came up with the notion right on the spot and I improvised that, hey, if you want, give me your phone and I can videotape it. This way, that created the dialogue between me and this stranger was actually an actor. And it kind of brought everyone else into the scene of, wow, this is going to be really cool. We're going to watch this guy propose. And and it was kind of like we, we built this excitement about all of us in the restaurant over this guy's proposal And then sure enough, who walks in but another male actor. So now it becomes a gay proposal. And now I can act in a way to, again, we we had established a relationship with everybody in a restaurant. Now I can act out my reaction and continue the conversation with everyone in the restaurant because we've already established a rapport. So I dropped the camera phone on the table. I'm out. I'm not doing this. And that opened the door for communication. The reason I love that scene is because in one of the scenes we had someone who defended me and was, hey, I'm with you. That's that's wrong. No way. It's it's not Adam and Steve. It's Adam and Eve. Across from me, there was a woman that was so emotionally hurt by what I did, started crying. And then a table over to the opposite side was a woman filled with rage that actually threatened to come over and hit me. Um to me to get what we called that was our grand slam the person on our side who's hey i'm with you the person who just brought to tears crying and then the person brought to rage that that was an unbelievable scene that we got all three reactions in one shot and it was all real all of those reactions were real um Every time we had that emotional reaction, it was very real. I could, I guarantee you that there's nothing that you're seeing that was staged. In fact, um, one of the last episodes I did, uh, the, the, the producer of the episode wasn't getting the reaction that he had hoped for. And he came to me and said, you know, engage the marks. The marks are the, the, the public people that would come into our scenario. And as actors, we, we had to act with one another. We were not allowed to really interact with the public. The only time we can interact with the public is if they interacted with us first. So there was never any entrapment. We never entrapped anyone that stepped into the scene. And this producer said, listen, we're not really getting 
that other side, that other reaction. And sometimes you don't. That's part of what life is. That's part of what, you know, filming is in these types of scenarios. Um, and he said, you know, engage the mark. And I went, no, absolutely not. He goes, no, we, we need to do something. to spy. And I said, no, I won't do it. In fact, I went straight to John and I said, John, he wants me to engage the marks. I'm not doing it. And John looked and said, no, that's not what we do. We don't do that here. We let the marks engage the actors. Uh, and there was a lot of reasons we did that. One, because, again, it's not entrapment. We didn't want to entrap anybody. Um, two, we wanted a real reaction as opposed to suckering someone into a reaction. And three, there's the legal aspect of it. You know, we didn't want to put – John especially never wanted to put actors in harm's way. And, listen, I was threatened, you know, many times, physically threatened by someone, you know, during a scene. Um, the food stamp episode, which is going around the internet now, I was physically threatened by somebody who wanted to, to come over and hit me. Um, so the show was very real as a hybrid news entertainment show. We always kept to keeping it real. So, you know, even when you have that situation, my point is news can be entertainment. News can be entertaining, but it should always be real. And even as a show that was entertainment slash news, we always kept it real. So in the end, you know, again, should Brian Williams be banished? Should he be hung? Should he be burned at the stake? No, um, it, it is what it is. And the people getting outraged, you know, again, you have to remember what you're watching. You're watching TV. Um, and, and that's what it's about. It's about advertising. It's about getting inciting people. Listen, what does the news do for the most part? It scares the hell out of you. It scares you so much that you have to continue watching. Could something in your house be killing you? Find out after this commercial break. Well, oh my God, what's in my house that's killing me? So that's, that's the job of the news. Um, Next topic, um, the Grammys. And, and this was uh, a very interesting Grammys um, on social media, having watched and, and tweet. Normally, I tweet out during um, all of these big events, whether it's the Super Bowl, the Grammys, the Oscars. So if you want to keep up with what I'm doing and what I'm saying in live time, um, follow me on Twitter at Vince August, no spaces. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, Vince August. Um, and if you yeah, listen, by the way, while we're at it, if you want to come see me live, you can normally find me at Caroline's on just about every Monday um, performing on a 7:30 show. Uh, Pat Dixon hosts a show that Linda Smith produces. It's a real fun show. There's a band on stage. Um, I will also be, by the way, while we're at it, uh, closing or part of a, a two showcases. I'm pretty sure I'm closing on March 6th. Uh, just to date the show, March 6th, 2015. There's two showcase shows on a Friday night at Caroline's, and I will be part of two unbelievable showcases. So if you're in the New York City area, please come out to see that. Um, but again, if you want to keep up with me while events are going on and not just listen to pre recorded podcasts, you could do so on Twitter. Facebook. I'm also on Instagram, Vince August. Just Google Vince August. You'll find me. The Grammys. Okay, the Grammys were, were crushed by a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. One was I, I saw people calling up the Grannies uh, because of all of the old bands and old performers uh, that the show was bringing back. And they were kind of mixing the old generation with the new generation. You saw McCartney performing with Kanye. You saw Hozier performing with Annie Lennox. And this seemed to, for whatever reason, bother people. ACDC opened the show. Um, listen, to me, music award shows, entertainment award shows, Oscars, Emmys, whatever. To, it's Again, folks, you have to remember what you're watching here. It's entertainment. This is what it's about. It's about entertaining you. And, for, you know, to say that these are the grannies because they had old, you know, performers or older performers on, you have to really take this from a business mo model perspective. Most of people watching TV, I hate to break it to everyone out there, is really an older generation. It's, it's 30s to 60s. 30s, 40s, 50s. Those are the people watching TV. 
Young people don't watch television. Young people watch stuff on iPhones, YouTube. Um, they're, they're too busy tweeting and Snapfish and, and all this other stuff. It's that you know small attention span thing. They get all of their entertainment in small doses. Our attention span is getting less and less. So the audience that's really watching television is an older, more mature audience. And mature, I mean by age. You have to throw in some of the older acts to keep these people engaged. Otherwise, you're going to get older people watching music saying, who the hell is this? If you turn on most radios, wherever you live, there's not a whole lot of music being played. It's a lot of talk. And there's a lot of banter back and forth. And as far as figuring out who new artists are, for the most part, it's not like radio was even in the 80s with One Hit Wonders where you knew who the band was. I mean, God forbid the 70s and 60s where bands you know, played together for years and years and years. You know, Then in the 90s, you, you got more into bands and, and albums being released. Then we got to 2000. There was no more albums. There's no more anything being released. Everything's going straight to iTunes. You Videos are going to YouTube. MTV is gone as we know it. So the Grammys has to kind of capture the audience. And the one way you're going to capture an audience by introducing an audience to what's new and fresh out there is by combining it with something that is more well-known to the person watching. So you know what? Because people are Beatles fans, because people love Paul McCartney, because people remember Annie Lennox, because people remember ACDC, we're going to combine new and old to introduce the old audience to the new acts and introduce the younger audience that is watching to the older music so that there's an appreciation across the board for music. So the people mocking the Grammys for, you know, oh, my God, what are you rolling out all these old people for? And Tony Bennett singing with Lady Gaga. I take the complete opposite approach. That I loved it. In fact, I thought the Hozier Annie Lennox duet stole the show. I, for me, that was the high moment in the Grammys. That that's where I I felt this thing hit its peak. Um, so you know, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, again, it's a music award show. A lot of people felt it was boring. Uh, I heard people. I saw people tweeting, "It's the Grammys with a string of Z's," as to don't you know connotate that people are are falling asleep. Listen, you know what? Not every song is going to be high upbeat. It's not all going to be Metallica. It's not going it, it is what it is. And a lot of people are missing, you know, the biggest music in this country right now by popularity is country western, which isn't exactly this fast-paced high energy type of music. So, I felt the the Grammys were very representative of what we have going on right now. I didn't have a problem with it. I love that they bridged the the generations. Uh, I enjoyed it. Then we get to the whole issue with Kanye West and what he did with Beck. And if, again, if you've somehow lived under a rock, and I know people are more in tune with entertainment news than, than you know, the, the stuff maybe even about Brian Williams. What happens is they give out best album of the year. And if you, if you saw back in 2009 at the MTV Music Awards, um, Taylor Swift won Best Video. She went up to get her award. Kanye went up, interrupted Taylor, saying Beyonce had the best video, that this was a sham, whatever. Well, here we are six years later. Beck wins Best Album. Kanye walks up to the stage as if he's going to say something, then walks off the stage. For anyone that saw it, and saw it the next day, and saw the different cuts and angles. This was clearly something that, in my mind, was staged from Kanye's point of view. Other than Beyonce winning that Album of the Year award, if anybody else was, in my mind, I'm truly convinced Kanye was going to do that. And here's the reason why I believe Kanye was going to do that. One, he was scheduled to perform the following week at in New York City 
in the Flatiron District area in an outdoor concert kicking off the NBA All-Star Weekend. Two, he was scheduled to perform on the Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary show. This was nothing more than Kanye promoting Kanye and the powers that be around Kanye promoting Kanye. Creating a buzz now that he is making the the, the rounds, so to speak. Again, as to who should win best album of the year, this is completely subjective. And I saw people going off on social media why Beck deserved it and Beyonce didn't. Beck wrote his own stuff. Beyonce has 970 writers, and I'm being obviously exaggerating. Beck plays every instrument known to man, including the harp, and you know Beyonce only knows how to dance. Again, being facetious, being I'm exaggerating. But this is what I saw. Guys, let's let's not forget what we're doing here. We're arguing over millionaires fighting over a little trophy, a little phonograph. And it's not even a real phonograph. It's a little gold trophy of a phonograph. Okay? I'm sure Beyonce, who has a room full of these things, 22, 23, whatever it's been, isn't going to cry over the fact she didn't bring home this other one. Okay? I, I mean, and the public jumped all over this thing in a way to defend Beck and crucify Kanye. It's entertainment. We are arguing over an award for who had best album. They're getting paid to do this. This is entertainment. Again, this is like arguing who is the MVP in whatever sport. I mean, come on, people. Here's where it got offensive to me. And what I started noticing on social media was for whatever reason, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed like many, if not most of the Kanye defenders were black and many, if not most of the Beck defenders were white. Somehow, some way, once again, this became a race issue. And I don't know what is happening in this country that whenever I go on the internet and read a news story and look at the comment section, why it always seems to degenerate into a racist attack, white on black, or why it always somehow degenerates to Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal. I hate Obama. Thank God it's over. Things always seem to degenerate to either taking a side of Republican Democrat, hating Obama, which is part of the Republican Democrat thing. That's kind of a a hybrid or a spinoff or white and black. I don't understand how white people somehow get suckered into this and black people get suckered into this. Listen, I could tell you right now. I don't care if an artist is white. I don't care if they're black. If their music affects me, that's why I listen. And to say that Beck or Beyonce are not talented performers in their own right, you really don't know anything about music. And you don't know anything about the public and what the public enjoys. This is subjective. They are both selling millions of copies of what they're producing. Beck is extremely talented. Beyonce has an unbelievable following and obviously is a very talented artist. Let's leave it at that. Let's not always degenerate into the racism. Let's not always degenerate into the lowest common denominator whenever we take these positions. Please grow up. These are really, really rich people arguing over a trophy. And I have to tell you, the only person that was arguing over it was one guy, Kanye West. And why did he do this? To promote himself. To put himself in the public eye before two huge public performances within one week. Oh, come on, man. See through it, people. Really wake up. 
All right, I, I spent way too much time on that. Now I want to get into um, uh, the topic of comedy as it relates to SNL. And um, they had the 40th anniversary show. That I, I'm taping this on President's Day, uh, which is a day off for a lot of people and which to me is, is somewhat offensive that some people can take this day off and not even be able to name you 10 presidents. I think that should be a prerequisite, actually. I don't think you should be allowed to have President's Day off unless you can name, I'm going to say, 15 presidents. If you your boss should interview you before you leave work on Friday, before President's Day weekend, and say, you got to name me 15 presidents. Everybody right now, write 15 presidents down on a piece of paper. If you can't name 15 presidents, you have to come into work on Monday. That would be my rule with regards to President's Day. But I digress. Let's get to SNL 40, and um, I have had uh, some very close interaction with some of the people on the show. I was actually on two episodes. Um, I'm trying to remember if the one aired. The one I was on was uh, one of those pre-recorded pieces, and I was cut out of the piece. Um, and what you do is you can be hired one of two ways on these shows. Um, something called an under five in the industry, meaning you have under five lines. So if you ever appear as a guest on a soap opera and you have under five lines, it's basically you went, you auditioned and you know, you, you got the part, but it's, it's considered an under five. It's not recurring. It's not a cast member, or you could be an extra. Uh, I refuse to ever work as an extra. The, the feeling in the industry is if you start working as an extra, you wind up getting caught in what's called extra hell, meaning you know you just keep getting called in as an extra, and the industry doesn't see you as anything more than that. Now, having said that, we absolutely positively need extras in films. Extras are an essential part of the film industry. I am not crapping on extras. In fact, there are people that make a ton more money as extras in this industry than I do as a performer in stand-up and acting. So I am not crapping on it. I'm just saying some of us have made that decision to not do that. And listen, one of the reasons I was talking about what would you do, one of the reasons I walked away from what would you do, I didn't feel that the credit on my resume was serving any more purpose after I did 40 episodes. I played that role. I played it out. People see that I can improvise. Continuing to play that character and being in an antagonist with another person to get someone to intervene I felt that I reached the ceiling and there was no more growth potential there for me as an actor. I pulled out. I don't, I told my agent, please don't submit me for the show anymore. That's a personal decision. Um, I have my personal opinion about the show. I, I don't feel that the show is breaking any new ground as of late. Uh, I think the topics are becoming repetitive as well, which is the second reason why I pulled out. I, I absolutely loved working with everybody on what would you do. But as a performer, you have to make certain decisions with regards to your career. And those were my decisions with regards to that. Um, so, again, you know, with regards to extras under fives and, and you have the principal characters, the feature performers uh, on the show. Um, I was also in a sketch where I was lucky enough to be at the taping of the show. So the pre-recorded was shot during the week at a studio on the west side. The second sketch I was a part of was part of a stand-up sketch um, where we were, you know, audience members heckling the performer on stage. Um, and the performer that night was the actor from Napoleon Dynamite, whose name is slipping my mind right now. Um, but I, I was, you know, part of that episode and here's the way the show works if you if you don't know. Um, and I'm just talking about the show night. There are two shows on Saturday night. There's the dress rehearsal that goes about 8.30, I believe, 8 o'clock, 8.30. And then there's the live show at 11.30. For my money, I think an audience member would rather be at the 8.30 show. For me, for my dollar, my bank, for my buck, the 830 show is the better value because you're really seeing the process played out over a longer period of time. Because from the 830 dress rehearsal to when they load the audience for the live show, there's a ton of edits. They cut scenes um, and all kinds of stuff happen. So I was there. We did the 830 rehearsal. Our scene was a go. We actually lined up 
to go out for the 11:30 show. We were in the hallway, and I was in the hallway with all the pitchers next to me, um, of all the different people that had been on the show. We were in the dressing room. I remember seeing Daryl Hammond get, getting hair and makeup done, um, watching the franticness in in the back with people changing out of outfits. Um, God, who was the music performer that night? I don't remember, but it was it was somebody really good, and I, I it's slipping my mind who it was. Um, but anyway, all of this fun excitement is going on. It really was unbelievable and an incredible to be backstage and watch that. I, I am so lucky to have been a part of seeing that. Certainly not a part of the show. Uh, as we're in the hallway and we're waiting waiting for our scene to get called out, um, someone comes over and says. Your scene is cut. And when they say that, that means they're not going to air that scene because of time constraints, because of editing purposes. Our scene was cut. You go back, you grab your stuff, and you leave. Just like that. And funny enough, that scene was on the very next week uh, with another scene that got cut. And Dane Cook was on the following week's episode. And as I'm watching the show, I'm like, well, there's our scene. So they don't necessarily call you back for that scene when it shoots a second time. Um, So that was uh, my experience with SNL in terms of being involved with the show. And again, I'm by no means trying to convince any of you I have anything to do with the show Saturday Night Live. I have worked with um, about 13 people, 14 people from the show over the course of years. Uh, quite cl- closely where I where I know them, uh, know these people quite well. If you mention my name, um, most of them will remember me. Uh, I had the pleasure of working with Rachel Dratch uh, at a Gilda's Club event for Gilda Radner, which is, you know, I'm going to talk about that with regards to SNL and an event going on for, for Gilda's Club that I'm, I'm going to be part of. Um, had the opportunity to open for Kevin Nealon at Caroline's. Great guy. Rachel Dratch, very sweet. Um, worked a couple times with Tracy Morgan. Super nice guy. Worked with Gilbert Godfrey at the Gilda's event this past November. Gilbert's an unbelievable guy. Has a phenomenal podcast you should catch. Um, let's see. Worked with Joe Piscopo. This is an interesting one. Worked with Joe Piscopo on a roast for the governors of the state of New Jersey for Governor Burns' 90th birthday. And I did a, a joke and it's a roast, everybody. You know, you do jokes about each other. And I said on the dais, and, and Piscopo was on the dais, I said, it's really incredible the way you all got limos for us to bring us here to the roast. I'm just curious, where did you find the DeLorean from Back to the Future to go to 1984 to pick up Joe Piscopo? And everyone got a kick out of it. I think it actually upset Joe Piscopo uh, because he snubbed me at the end of the night, didn't say goodbye to me. Um, other people I've worked with, Dean Edwards, uh, stand-up comic, great guy, Jay Farrow. Uh, Jay is on the show now, super nice guy. I run into him at Caroline's. Um, Pete Davidson, I saw Pete Davidson when he started doing comedy at what used to be the Laugh Factory in New York City. Kid from Staten Island. Man, this kid hustled. He busted his butt, and he ran all over the city to get spots, did what he had to do. And good for Pete that he's on the show. Uh, Well-deserved. He definitely worked for it. Michael Che I worked with a bunch of times at Caroline's. A really nice guy. Um, Robert Smigel I worked with at an event that we did a a fundraiser in the name of um, at Caroline's. Oh, my God. It was for Madeline Kahn, the Madeline Kahn Foundation. Her husband did a show, and Smigel was there, and... I wound up going up right before Smigel. Me and Smigel were in the back of the room, and I'm telling you, just the nicest guy ever. Uh, he did a Triumph, the Wonder Dog bit that night. We took a picture, me, him, and and Triumph with Caroline Hirsch. And R- Robert Smigel couldn't be a nicer guy. Really an unbelievable sweet guy. Um, and then there's the, the, the other three. Eddie Murphy, I, I got a chance to meet um, – through, I, I knew someone who worked with Eddie Murphy, and I, and I wound up meeting his brother-in-law at the time. This was his wife, his ex-wife's brother. And because I did some stuff for the, the family, I was invited to a barbecue that they had 
Labor Day weekend, and this was at his place in New York State, and he had a, a, a scavenger hunt on the property, huge property, and he had a scavenger hunt, and I remember looking at my fiance Eileen, and I said, we're winning the scavenger hunt. I said, we're going to win the scavenger hunt. This way I can say hello to Eddie Murphy and I can meet him in person. And we, we can you know kind of sit and break bread with Eddie Murphy. And we ran all over this property on this hot day in September, sweating bullets. And sure enough, we won. And uh, we won this, this, this treasure hunt, scavenger hunt thing. And our prize presented to us by Eddie's wife was a Billy the wide mouth bass singing fish. I don't know if you ever saw these things. Basically, it looks like a fish on a plaque, and you hit a button, and it starts singing, don't worry, be happy. This was the award, and it was kind of like a goofy thing. And I looked at his wife, and I said, I got to meet Eddie. I'm like, this is who my story, I'm I'm a stand-up and this and that. And I met Eddie, and he was cool, and Charlie was there, and Charlie was cool. And I, I actually you know, worked with Charlie a couple times, then there are the other two people that I, I like to think I have stronger ties with, um, one of which was not represented well along with an entire other group that I felt was not represented well during the SNL 40 show, and that was the writers. To me, as much as the show was about the performers and the people you see on the screen, the show was really about what happens in the writing rooms and the people that, again, as the show goes from the dress rehearsal to the live show that airs on television, they are editing cue cards. They are cutting lines. They are editing the lines. They're editing the setups to make it more concise. Those are the writers at work, which is why when you're watching the show, if you notice the actors are on the cue card and you're saying, I can't believe they could have memorized those lines. Those lines literally change from 830 to 1130. So you can't really take your eyes off the cue cards. It's not a matter of memorizing lines in the normal traditional sense. And to me, I felt that the writers were somewhat slighted in the, the anniversary show. And one of the writers I have come recently to know, Alan Zweibel, uh, wound up being a, a, a very close and dear friend to Gilda Radner. And I've had an opportunity to work with Alan on two occasions. Another occasion, he watched me as part of a, a Friars Club roast um, when we were having some fun with Vincent Pastore. And Alan is, when you talk about just one of the smartest people in this business, writes for Billy Crystal, you know, 700 Sundays, was part of one of my favorite shows in the 80s, that, you know, the, the Larry Sanders show. Just a brilliant guy. Um, and, and I felt the writers were a little bit slighted. I felt that there should have been more attention given to the writers over the course of years. And then there's the, the final guy who I want to mention, and that's Daryl Hammond, uh, who I consider a friend. And, and I would think and hope Daryl considers me a friend as well. Daryl Hammond, many people know him for his impersonations and, and what he did on the show as Bill Clinton and, and Al Gore. Uh, Daryl Hammond is one of the sweetest people you will ever meet in this business. Um, when I was starting to make a lot of headway at Caroline's, I, I didn't know any better. I asked Daryl to be part of a show that I was headlining and said, hey, Daryl, would you love to be in the show? And he said, yeah, I'm in town. He goes, I, he goes I'll open for you. And I never thought to ever ask somebody like Daryl Hammond to open for me. But Daryl did that to kind of be supportive of me as a comic. And that's a guy with no ego. That's a guy who just, you know, is a great guy. And and then when I started doing um, video interviews, I asked Daryl when his book just came out, if he would let me interview him, then no, no problem. Where do you want to do it? Just make it convenient for me in the city if you can. And we did it at a friend's apartment. And I got to tell you, I am, I'm thrilled to be able to call Daryl Hammond, the friend. He's an, a great, great guy. And he's so much more than the impersonations that you see on the show. Um, and he has since been named to take over for Don Pardo to introduce the show. That was another guy I felt was a little bit slighted, was Don Pardo. But my wrap-up with SNL 40 is this. For the people that have seen it over the course of the years, this show is 40 years old. It is as much a part of American pop culture 
society and television as anything we've ever had on TV, including The Late Show um, with Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show, I should say, with Johnny Carson or any of the talk shows. This is a part of America. It's a bigger part of the New York entertainment scene. It's so supportive of comedy in this country that, you know what, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's a marriage. I don't care if it's, you know, a a sports team. I don't care if it's politics. I don't care if it's a school. Anything over the course of 40 years is going to have bumps. Anything over the course of 40 years, when you look at a 40-year period of time, you're going to be able to critique anything. And can you sit back and look at certain casts and say, you know what, ah, this cast was terrible, this cast stunk, this cast... You could rip apart anything with a 40-year lifespan. But I don't think anyone can sit out there. And someone actually said this and posted this on one of the threads on my Facebook page with regards to the show. Sorry, awful show, never liked it. I'm sorry, you don't have a sense of humor. You, you can't have a sense of humor if you can actually tell me when looking at the 40-year body of work that is Saturday Night Live that there weren't some of the funniest moments in television during those 40 years and whether they're breaking character and laughing on purpose or not, or whether it's just because of their caught in the moment, I don't care. That show had some brilliant moments introduced us to some amazing talent over the years. And whether you like the 40th anniversary show or not, you have to respect what that show has meant to this country in terms of being a part of the comedy fiber that is. Um, So that was the show with regards to the Gilda's event. I'm going to be a part of Uh, Gilda's Gilda Radner foundation and the Gilda's club um, works to help people, uh, women, but just people in general going through cancer treatment and they are putting together something to kind of like what was the ALS challenge. And I am so proud that Ruth Dugan reached out to me to to help put together um, this challenge to help bring awareness to the Gilda Radner Club, what the foundation does, what the organization does, and try to raise some money to help these people. Hopefully, I will be able to release that news real soon. Um, Everyone, thank you for listening. I know it was a long podcast, but I thought we hit some really fun topics And hopefully it went by faster than what it took to listen. Um, Spread the word. Vince August. Everyone, thank you.